All right, so for our introduction, this is Carl Romstad, a school psychologist and director of education in the district of Twin Cities, Minnesota, uh, in, a, in a district near Twin Cities, Minnesota. And uh, he's a researcher and presenter in the field of school psychology and cognitive processes. He's done research on what he calls the informal learner. And he has particular interest in a type of reasoning called contextual reasoning for measuring the reasoning of minority populations. And right. he is presented at TEDA in Texas in 2019 on this topic. He'll discuss uh, this topic again today, but he has additional follow-ups and findings and news to share about what he's learned. So I'm just getting started on some questions here. Um, your research has a lot to do with formal assessments of informal learners, particularly as it relates to reasoning skills. And most of us diagnosticians, we our knowledge of um, reasoning skills are usually limited to pretty much inductive, deductive, and quantitative reasoning. But um, you had mentioned researchers use terms like relational abstraction informal reasoning, practical intelligence, and contextual intelligence. Can you just tell us a little bit about these terms um, and what they mean? Absolutely. So, um, yeah, welcome to the outside of the rats. Um, <laughs> these terms are, uh, you know, when I started as a school psych about 10 years ago, um, <clears throat> I, I know exactly what you're saying with inductive, deductive, quantitative. There's so many terms out there. And it's really hard, you know, you're never going to know all of them. So we really have to know which ones are most applicable. But as I data and do my own research, these new terms came, came involved or they came up. <clears throat> so to get started with this, um, we can't really talk about those new terms until we, we just have to talk about what, what the heck is reversed on. And a lot like, and that doesn't an agreed upon definition, but a, you know, we, we pretty much all agree it's kind of like this kind of like um resist your ability to understand and to think about information um discriminate between different types of information and uh <clears throat> a planner strategy based on that same information um and if if we want to compare this to the term intelligence which it sounds a lot like um which is as uh abstract problem solving measured by an IQ test so i i or usually um it's it's been stated that uh intelligence is reasoning is you using your set of it some people you know some people have said that and that makes sense so those two are connected now that we know what the sort of agreed upon depth reasoning is we can jump into the term formal reasoning and this is really conceptual nature and it's usually more deductive and mathematical um, it relies on abstractities. It's it's really really contingent on that. Um, it's very similar in definition to fluid reading. They're they're actually pretty much the same thing. It's Pepsi and Coke at this point, just different terms or different labels, but they're the same. Um, and really, when we talk about formal reading, fluid reasoning, um, in the tests that we use, um, we're we're looking at mathematical abstract stimuli, and we're we're filling in missing pieces. So we have to find that missing component that's not right there in front of us we have to use a lot of inductive and that's really really with all this too you know what the heck is abstraction so we've got a couple terms formal um intelligence and abstraction that have general agreed terms and when we talk about abstraction relational abstraction term that i learned flynn's 2016 book does our family make us smarter it was a really good book um i would recommend that 
you know, if you have time, give it a shot, read it. It's a real um, direct approach to how much does our uh, our external environment influence how we think and how we reason. And when he talks about relational abstraction, it's kind of abstraction to the secondary, where if abstraction is generalization about a relationship or relationships between objects or ideas opposite to the concrete world, relational abstraction is analogical mapping when relations between objects are unrelated to the objects themselves. And that's, it's, it's pretty pretty out there. Um, it's a lot easier to understand when you see pictures of in some of the tests that we, I would say the best example when I presented with Dr. Dean, who I'm co-researching with, um, when we've presented, we've shown, um, what is it? Uh, it's on the WISC-5 um, figure weights. Figure weights is a very good example. I can, I can bring it up in the pen. If you want. Yeah. I, I put the, it, the, I made a link and I can awesome. put it up in the pen. Yeah. yeah Just give me a second. <laughs> Figure which um, underlying or between objects in that subtest, they can only be discovered if we understand that the objects um, we see do not retain their identity, and they will not retain it depending on what order they're in. We see this in the Raven's progressive mate. So it's like a, it's abstraction to the second. Um, All right. So I'm going you, I'll let you. I'll give you a second to pull that up if you want to. Change the pen. A good example of it would be in algebra. Um, right. An X would represent quantity depending on where that X is. It, it will mean something totally different. It does not retain its identity because depending on what other symbol that X is next to. So that's relational dynamics. All right. I think I got the figure weights on this one. Pull, just swipe down to refresh. You'll see an informal learner um, picks. Yeah. Um, so, yes, some of those um, we walk just really concrete. So the first one, I believe, is triangles and two big triangles, two small triangles. And that's not relational. That's not even abstraction. That's just tell us what you um, Then we move to like two trees. Now that's abstraction because now you have to take you have to take out the meaning of those two things. You have to see the underlying theme. They don't look exactly the same. But but they do have similar properties that you need to need to figure out. Um, I think there's one with the lion, the fish, the whistle, the radio, and the dog. Where now we're getting a little bit more into the weeds with abstraction there, where you have to understand that the only thing that doesn't fit in is a fish because it doesn't make a noise. Um, but as we get further, the the last one is number sixteen on figure weights, I believe, and it's just you really have to understand that those symbols in figure weights have different meanings depending on how they are lined up. Some people are really good at that, um, and some people, it's it's just a big headache. You know, there's there's no way they're going to figure that out. So, mm -hmm. um, but then we would go reasoning. Um, again, there's no really agreed upon definition of this, like like the other terms we've talked about. Um, but we won't let that discredit the term um, because you know, like I said, intelligence is the same way, and we rely on that term. And this is really just reasoning outside of the formal academic setting, a reasoning that's more inductive and not so much. Not, not so reliant on mathematical logic. Um, it's pretty much the reasoning carried on outside of formal context of math and symbolic logic is how it's defined. We then move on to practical intelligence and contextual intelligence. Um, and this is part of Sternberg. Work. And really these two terms are about real life application of reasoning. So practical intelligence and contextual intelligence are what you would do in a real life situation. And I think we've all met that person who can nail it on an algebra test. They can nail calculus, they can nail their academics, but when they get outside of school, making some of the most common choices that we need to make, how to make a meal, 
how to mail a letter, things like that. It's hard. So in theory, you'd say that their practical intelligence or contextual intelligence is a little bit lower, but their formal read is higher. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. So I, I think of it kind of like just all kinds <clears throat> of sort of sort of analogies, I guess, <clears throat> like, um, would that be a good way to, to think about it? Like how, if this is to this, then that is to that kind of figuring yes. out how things relate to each other. Yeah. So remember Flynn talks about the work of Luria and Luria was working with peasant farmers and Luria would show them, I think it was a saw, axe, a hammer, and a block of wood. And Luria would ask, you know, which one of these doesn't belong? And it depends on how you're looking. Um, if you're not looking at the underlying themes, like you're talking about, um, if you're just looking at what's right in front of you with a real utilitarian approach, um, the peasant farmers actually got rid of one of the tools because they said, we don't need this to fashion something out of that log. But if you're looking at it from what Flynn calls a scientific approach, you'd get rid of the log because it's not. And it gets deeper than that. But yeah, looking at those relationships, the analogical relationships between things. That brings us to a newer term, which we call contextual reasoning. So a fluid reason, formal reasoning are based on the abstract mathematical logic um, that is reliant on relational abstraction. Um, contextual reason is a form of reasoning reliant on concrete, contextual, and practical thinking and problem solving, not bound by the rules of mathematical or abstract thinking. So it's the opposite. And I've told people in conferences when we, when we present on this that th there are two reasoning. There's the one side that's formal and the other side that's contextual. But people that think that it's formal reasoning, and that's all we have to do is measure that, and we're going to get a good idea of how a a person processes and solves problems. That's a real flatter. Um, you know, there's another side to the planeting and cognition, and that's what contextual is. So I, I kind of think about it too, like, um, you know, how we were talking about what my son, my son's almost 18. He's real okay. nerdy into computers, you know, mm -hmm. and I showed him your K, uh, KTEA uh, easel, the, the, the picture of the, mm -hmm. you know, it's pants, shirt, shirt, t-shirt. Yeah. And each one's a different color, pretty much mm -hmm. primary colors and green. And um, and then, you know, you've got three with buttons. The pants and two shirts have buttons. The T-shirt doesn't. So, you know, like you were mm -hmm. saying, some people might say, oh, well, this one doesn't have buttons. So that's the one that doesn't belong. Right. But he came along and looked at it and said, well, mom, the green I and mean, the yellow shirt doesn't belong. And I was like, why the yellow shirt? And he's like, well, it's not a primary color. I was like, yellow is a primary color. What are you talking about? And he goes, well, no, mom, primary colors of light, like on a computer, <laughs> you know, exactly. like a computer screen. And he, because his world is computers in the context of his world, that's his reasoning, right? Is that what, kind of what you're trying to get at? It, yeah, that, that's a good example. So what experiences with that? If he, he was probably looking in a much more concrete light, he's looking at the colors of that. He's not looking at the underlying pattern that three of these things go on your upper body and on your lower. I actually was showing that to some kids and they saw two schools in the Twin Cities. One of them was in North Minneapolis, Brooklyn Center, and it was disenfranchised kids, a lot of them that live below the poverty line. And that's part of contextual, conceptual thinking. And when I would show that to them, you know, these are little kids. So their reasoning that they're demonstrating on this subtest is a good representation of what they have been learning in their in their life at home. And they would always point to the shirt that didn't have a collar. And why would they do that? Because they had to wear uniforms to school. So a t-shirt had no business in their life in school. Now, I had was wrong. So they were 
you know, points were taken away. But when we think about it, if, if we looked at this through a contextual reasoning approach, if there was a contextual reasoning portion of the test where you would give credit for, um, that's the direction where we're, you know, because how can I say these kids are wrong? That's their life. That's what they've experienced. So not everyone at the underlying, they're looking at, this is what would apply in mind. There was another one where it was three dogs and a calico cat, or, or was it a, no, two cats, a calico cat and a dog. Three of the animals were solid color. One of them, of course, calico cat was multiple colors and the kids always chose the calico cat. They're not looking at things in terms of feline and canine. They're looking at, hey, look, this animal has a lot of colors that he's done. So again, it was hard to ding them. But, you know, when we talk about standardization and following the rules, we, we need to do that or we're going to compromise the results. And when I would actually write reports up, if you're a psych in the city, someday you might come across um, some of my reports. It will actually say that this student demonstrated less formal, more contextual reasoning abilities that were not able to be measured, but their formal reasoning abilities were lower. So, gotcha. I, you know, and I just, I just couldn't help myself. I know in the manual, but as you start to research, and again, like I said, you go down this rabbit hole, you never look at these tests the same thing. So, so how do you figure out <clears throat> if that reasoning is just a wrong answer, if it's really part of their world and the way they're thinking about that? How do that, you measure that or? That, well, yeah. that's that's where I don't want to get too far off because you don't measure it. I, I kind of I, I was going rogue. Mm -hmm. um, but if on things like contextual or conceptual thinking, pattern reasoning, when they start to get lower scores, but on the more slum triangles are getting higher scores, this doesn't say that it's just suggesting maybe there isn't totally developed or they need to work on. It. That's all I'm saying because I can't mm -hmm. actually say what their contextual reasoning score is because the test wasn't designed to do that. Right. So would you say that those are limitations of an IQ test that we just have to be aware of? I would absolutely um, say that, yes. Mm -hmm. And then um, what what are, are there, you know, uh, how do we become more aware of these limitations when we report on them in our reports? I think the only way you can be aware right now is you got to just consider the mathematical nature, um, and the abstract nature of some of these subtests. Um, you know, we used to think that fluid GF was innate and what you were born with is what you were born with. But we know through research that that's just not the case. And when we go back to relational abstraction, Flynn cites research where groups of people in the United States from the 1940s to the 1990s were given an IQ test. They were exposed to activities that required relational abstraction. Their IQ tests or their IQ scores were getting better. Hence the Flynn effect. So the more exposure we have to what he calls a scientific lifestyle or scientific thinking, or when our life demands, we will get better scores on fluid reasoning based sub or, uh, assessments. And really every assessment is based on fluid reasoning. You can call it fluid reasoning, planning, but anything that requires mathematical or abstract. So, um, Tell us how you got into this type of research. Why is this topic a passion of yours? I noticed that you have some particular <clears throat> research in the area of um, testing with Southeast Asians. Um, just tell me about how that developed. It's uh, what life brings you. So um, my my wife is Southeast Asian. She's actually Hmong. And when I uh, I met her, I married her, and I've been living with um, with this group of people, you know, doing a lot of family activities with them, um, eating the food, you know, I even learned the language. You become immersed and you start to see um, 
the other side of this. And um, when I was assessing kids, Hmong kids, because I was working on charter schools, I noticed that their scores were lower. And I just, I thought, you know, as a whole, this group wouldn't have low Q, so something has to be wrong with the test. And of course, I would read about um, the bias of a test. So then I started, well, what was the bias? Because how could shapes, mathematical shapes be biased? I just didn't understand that. Um, so I guess back up. It, um, so when I started to look at the data, um, I was a student at the University of Minnesota getting my director's license. And I was referred to um, speak to a woman by the name of Jill Watson. She's an EL in the Twin Cities. Um, and she's done a lot of work, students called um, SLIFE, Students with Limited or Interrupted Formal Education. So I read a book that she recommended and it, you know, it was like lightning strikes you. It just, there was a lot of information in there that although it was ELL um, centered, it talked about the, um, the SLIFE student and how they are limited with abstract thinking, not because they can't do it, but because abstract thinking just isn't conducive to their lifestyle. Um, a lot of these refugees that are coming from places like Southeast Asia, East Africa, and um, they're, you know, they were lower SEL kids that they needed to stay in the concrete. They really did because they would have to go home. They would help take care of their brothers and sisters. You know, we're talking eight-year-old kids that are taking care of their brothers and sisters, eating food while their parents work third shift. So they were really good at what I would say contextual-based tasks, but they didn't do so well in school and they didn't do so well on uh, on these IQ tests. Um, so I thought, well, there's there's got to be something here. And um you know, I was wondering, what was it? How can we measure this? Because we were getting, you know, in one of my charter schools, we were getting kids um, fresh out of refugee camps from Southeast Asia. And every single one of those kids that was taking an IQ test, good IQ. I mean, these are good tests with a lot of research. They were getting scores below 70, below 60. And I just couldn't believe. Then I started to realize that this isn't just refugee kids. These are disenfranchised kids in the United States too. You don't have to be an immigrant to be impacted and live this lifestyle. You know, look at some of the impoverished parts of the cities, like the Twin Cities, Chicago, New York, everywhere has it, where those kids are living a very, very similar lifestyle to that of a refugee. Their parents have to work. Something might've happened to their parents where they can't work. They have to help take care of their brothers and sisters. And abstract just isn't on the forefront of, of what they can do. They, they have to stay in them. So I don't wanna go off on a tangent, but through my personal experience and through then reading more literature, I started to realize that abstract thinking is good for, or it, it really seems to flourish in kids with more accessibility. So higher SES kids probably have the ability to do that because everything is taken care of for them, as opposed to lower SES kids. They could probably abstractly think if they if they were given time, if they were given more training um, and, and exposure, but it's just, it's not part of their life it, and it doesn't have to be at this time. So, yeah. and, and there's that famous uh, or popular um, TED talk by Flynn, if y'all haven't watched yes. it, it's so good, um, where he <clears throat> says he he's talking about, uh, I mean, I, I didn't even realize like the Flynn was alive and talking mm -hmm. about TED talk, like I thought it was the Flynn effect and that was like <laughs> years ago and that's what mm -hmm. it was. But um, listening to him in TED talk, he was talking about, you know, how he went to those, um, or I don't know if it was him or um are the researchers you said he was following but they, they went to the like the farmer in russia and said yep. you know some bears are white and then he was, yeah. they were like no no bears are white bears are not white you are crazy yep. and um and then he he said well no no some bears are white and he you know he, that that person couldn't 
couldn't imagine or entertain the idea that that could even be possible because never been exposed to different kinds of animals through pictures that he had never seen before. Whereas students who are, do have a lot of access to media and um, literature and, and all of that, you know, see so much that they can start to imagine something that they've never seen before. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, that, that was just very eye opening. And then, and then how he said that, you know, like where he, he said about uh, I'm, he was working the civil rights movement and he went to his father and said, his father said, well, why, why are you doing this? And he said, well, you know, I, what if I was, what if we were black dad? What if, you know, I, he, um, connecting them and, and, and his father said, that's, that's black. Yeah. You know? I, like he couldn't I even entertain the idea. Yeah, he he made that. Some people don't take the absolute, the hypothetical, and establish a logical connection. And there is research out there. You know, this isn't, it's just these tidbits of information and research out there that this has been going on for a while. And I'm for the life of me, I just don't know why this has not gotten into the world of psychometrics. Um, I, if I can upload some, some references, there are some really good, uh, there's some really good research out there. And one of them was very, very important when I, when I started researching this and it was done by the, a man by the name of Dalton Miller Jones, where in the late eighties, he did some work with inner city African-American kids, kindergarten, and he did four different groups and he wanted kindergarten because kindergarten was the best example right out of their parents' home. This is how they are processed. This is how they're reasoning. Um, he had two groups that he had the low achievers and the high achievers. You know, how did they determine this? Well, the high achievers were given a Stanford Binet, uh, Stanford Binet, a reading readiness test and a, uh, a parent interview, as were the low achievers. The high achievers all had a Stanford Binet score of average 25, which is pretty good. Reading readiness scores were at the 99th percentile and, you know, the parents interview yielded information that indicated the kids follow rules at home. They were well-behaved, you, you know, whatever you know that. The low achievers had Stanford Binet scores of about 88 and their reading readiness score was in the 21st percentile. And, you know, the parents said that the kids do follow structure at home to some degree, but there's a lot going on in their, in their life. So there were two measurably different groups, um, you know, at, at, in both achievement. <clears throat> so when this was all done, you know, they, Dalton Miller Jones did observations, um, things like that, and he did a problem solving test for these kids or a problem solving activity where they used the Venn diagram and they were given instructions to place these colored blocks into certain parts of the Venn diagram. So overall, he, what he found was the high achievers, which in the end ended up being the formal reasoning kids, they were way more reliant on adult input. And they were rule bound. They wanted things to be right the first time. They so they didn't want to learn by error. They wanted it to be perfect right away. Um, and their home life was described as way more structured. There was a time to do homework, you know, take a bath, things like that. They were just rule governed and structured social systems too. Even when they played, um, the low achievers were way less reliant on adult input, and that was because in some cases the adult wasn't always there, so they had to figure things out on their. Um, they. They still looked, but but they weren't seeking high achievers. Um, They learned by doing mistakes and experiment. And their home life was less centered on timelines and organization. It was more day-to-day. When they observed these kids playing, um, neighborhood play showed way more large group games. It wasn't just individual. It was everyone's going to take a shot at this. And um, it it was funny because 
he observed the rules of the games were frequently bent. So when we talk about um, if you wanted to play a basketball game, there are rules to basketball, but we've all heard the term street. You know, it's it's just a different, less form of playing. Everyone's having a good time, but we're not so focused on the rules. The most interesting thing about this problem-solving activity, when both groups were given the Venn diagram and were asked to sort the blocks, the high achievers initially were way more selective and system, systematic. With um, They asked questions, um, informed choices. They Again, they wanted to write the first time. Um, when they were placing blocks uh, and grouping them, they used categorical methods too. Um, so they were looking for patterns and blocks, uh, so to speak, um, in colors, shapes, and other attributes. And the low achieving blocks at random, they, they weren't really diligent about following the rules. They were picking these random blocks and placing them. And even if they got the wrong answer, they were, they were learning by their mistakes. And over time, the high achievers did way better initially with the problem solving activity. But as the task got harder, they didn't do so well. And the low achieved do very well in the beginning, but as the task got harder, they were able to match the abilities of the high achiever because what we're going to call informal learners, that's how they did things. It was all about the experience of the activity. So we, we get the rules, but let's, let's figure this out for a real concrete, contextual, informal approach. And, um, it was it was really really interesting, and in the end, um, Dalton or Jones said that you know these kids were showing attributes of an informal learner. They weren't low achievers; they just weren't the same as the high achievers or the formal reasoning kids. So they're not going to show us these high academic scores initially or high intellectual scores. That was a that was a pretty interesting case. Um, I think we cover that when we present. That's mm-hmm. one of them that I really like to touch on because it it hits home. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, if you swipe down to refresh, I've now added um, the figure weights picture, and I've um, added the the researcher's name, Dalton Miller Jones. Yeah. And the more you talk about this, I just keep going back to this book, you know, that I had to. I told you about after I met mm-hmm. you at the conference. This book by Shirley Bryce Heath, Ways with Words, where she picked. Um, she's an anthropologist, and she <clears> picked. And we had to read this for our like master's level class at University of Maryland. Um. In special education because our professor wanted us to understand sort of how different you know informal cultures can, can informal thinking can um, in different kinds of low economic or different kinds of cultures can affect you know the your your um, cognitive performance on things mm-hmm. um, but she she had three different towns in North Carolina during uh, during the um, 60s um, where there were African-American families living in um, and sharecropping neighborhoods in one town. And then there was another, of course, this sort of um, segregation of towns doesn't really, you know, like that to, to where there's a majority sharecropping is not as prevalent anymore. But um, so she had this one town that was sharecroppers. They were mostly in, in um, African-American. And then there was your factory workers who were also not very well off, but poor, but they had that, they were, they passed down or taught this more formal reasoning. Um, and then and then you had your townspeople who were very, um, whether they were African-American or white, it didn't matter because of their economic level, they were, they were kind of had more in common. Mm-hmm. And um, just the cultural differences, like she said that she brought um, tiles and the tiles were different colors and different sizes. And then she asked, you know, the, the kids who come from the factory workers' homes, to um, you know, sort them, and they sorted them by color or size. 
but when it gave them to the children of the sharecroppers, they, they asked them to sort them. They were sorting them by whether or not they had glue on the back of them. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so, so, you know, they were sorting them by their own, you know, rules, but it just wasn't the rules of this, of, you know, that majority society. Mm -hmm. And so they got themselves into a pickle when, you know, they had to organize their toys or, um, you know, label everything by a name when, you know, they didn't come from a, from a, from a society that labeled things, you know, by yeah. name all the time. So, uh, yeah, I just like the more I, I hear you talk about this, the more I just keep going back to that book, which I thought was a really easy read and very, um, very enlightening. If you want Absolutely. to check that out. Yeah. I, I actually, I bought that. It, it, it is right in line with this. Yeah. It, yeah. It's just, you know, all the research we have out there, some people don't think it's as applicable to their trade because it's based on language or it's an anthropology book or something, but it's out there. And if, you know, if you tie all this together, which we are, as we tie all this together, we, you know, we when find a tool, we will make a tool that is going to be able to take all of this into consideration and start to get absolutely even scores, absolutely even scores. So, wow. So yeah. tell us a little bit more about that. Where, where's all this reason you, I see that, um, you've been able to co collaborate with um, mm -hmm. people like Dr. Ortiz, Dr. Dean's here with us today. I'll just go ahead and yeah. invite him up too, if he wants to say anything. Um, and um, even James Flynn. So um, your research, uh, how has your research added to this knowledge base of these researchers? And um, are there tools that are designed and or there tools that are designed for us to use? So that's, um, yeah, so after an enlightened moment and I got this information, I, I spoke to someone at the University of Minnesota called Michael Rodriguez, and he said, this is really good data, but you got to publish. So um, I went to a small periodical in the Twin Cities called the Hmong Studies Journal. Um, and I, when I say it, I, I didn't explain all the data that I got on Hmong kids taking Q tests and looking at patterns um, in, in performance and saying that this is what I think is going on and um, you did accept it. So I, I got this published and, um, you know, I would reference that at times. And um, the, the oldest tool was Samuel Ortiz because I was looking at his CLIM. And I said, you know, when I put this data into the CLIM, the CLIM says that this is all correct. But into the CLIM, and you modify and you look at abstract loading instead of cultural loading. If you if you say anything that is more abstract belongs in the high cultural loading, so pattern rate. Um, conceptual thinking, you will see the CLIM show a, you know, that line that it produced. So right. the CLIM so it looks like, looks like a funnel kind of, yeah. Exactly. It, it fits that if you do abstract loading instead of the cultural loading that he suggested. And, um, he, you know, liked that. He said, you're absolutely right. Um, and we collaborate a little bit more on that. Um, I reach out to Dr. Flynn, just, I mean, hey, it's the age of Google. So James Flynn, Google him, and you know, he's in New Zealand. So I thought, hey, this is a lot. Let's just send him in. And, you know, I emailed him and I said, based on the research you've done in this book, would you say that this is a worthy cause? Could you measure this? And he, and he got back to me and he said, absolutely. You absolutely could measure this. Um, he agreed to that. No one had it yet. So with this information, um, I spoke to some people that I, uh, Sally Bass and Marilyn Lee, who I knew through the Minnesota School Psych Association, and they said, you've got to talk to Dr. Mann. So he was my next target. Um, I tried to get a hold of him. You know, he was really, really with the stuff he was doing. So I tried to find him at uh, MISPA, which is the Minnesota School Psych Association winter, um, winter 
conference and we chatted a little. Um, then I said, I'm going to be at NASP. We should connect more in 2018. So he, you know, he was gracious enough to give me a few minutes of his time. I sat him down and I said, this is what I think is going on. And, um, you know, I spoke to some people about this and I kind of got the door shut in my face, but he said, you know, I, I think there's probably something going on here. I'm, I'm willing to sit down and collaborate with you on this. And, uh, it was a lot of work, but um, together we have actually made a, or we piloted and we're standardizing an assessment of nonverbal contextual reasoning. And right now, the data that we're seeing, you know, we're going through the standardization, we're seeing the same scores between ethnicity groups, and we're even seeing higher scores with lower SES kids. So, you know, and, and the way we're measuring contextual reasoning is also something that we need to consider. It's not just what the kids are looking at, but it's, not being so strict um the scoring you know it's not um, being so strict with, you get a couple wrong and then you're done so there's a higher tolerance for error also um i think we've all given rover i mean is that subtest sound oh yeah. you know on the okay and and i call it the rover issue when the kid doesn't go diagonal and you wish they would and now you got a ceiling the kid out you know the kid knows what he or she is doing but they make an honest mistake so with our tests, the assessment of non-contextual reasoning, you're allowed to correct times. That makes all the difference. And, you know, some would ask, well, isn't that just an IQ test or a reasoning test made easy? No, it's not the case. Because the higher SES kids, they don't benefit from it at all. They do the same. So we're working with that contextual learner because they're thinking less formally. They learn by doing. And again, you know, we're, we're seeing great results, right? Um, we're actually standardization phase. So we are looking for kids whose parents have less than a college education, African-American kids, Latino kids. So so um, I don't know if anybody's ever been involved in standardization <clears throat> before. I've, I've done it once um, a while back for Pearson, and it's very fun. I mean, you, you, they tell you you, want, you need a kid whose parents have this education from that um you know racial background and from this area of the united states mm -hmm. um and and so on they give you all these uh, criteria you find that kid that fits all those check boxes mm -hmm. give them fill have them fill out a form and 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 stuff and you give them the test mm -hmm. i mean usually they'll train you to do it and then mm -hmm. you get money and then the person who is the kid also gets money for yep. for doing it right that's what yeah. we're doing right now um mm -hmm. if I can add my email to this. Um, Dr. Dean is on too, but I can just give my information. And uh, if anyone knows any kids that are interested, like I said, we need more African-American kids. We need more Latino kids. And we need some kids that are from, you know, families with less than a college education. But right now we're, we're making a lot of good progress. It's very promising. Mm -hmm. So We're excited about this. So, um, and, um, you know, you, Tammy, she's here too. Um, thanks for joining Tammy. She always says, you know, go beyond the score. And I think this is just a little bit of that too. Like, um, mm -hmm. you know, more than just, um, you know, let's not just look at those numbers. Let's look at what the tasks of these tests are asking. And um, by the way, Tammy, I, I, I said I would mention that she does have some trainings coming up if you haven't seen them on um, Facebook, um, all free and um, great things to look forward to. So appreciate all the stuff she does for us. Um, but yeah, the, the, um, you know, going beyond the score and looking a little bit more. I know I've been in some of these situations. I just end up asking the parents, like, is this something that's like smart for you guys, normal? Like, or is this mm -hmm. unusual for you? And um, I remember one time I did that, a, a kid from the Cameroon and, you know, English is their native language, but mm -hmm. 
we wrote something like, um, this is a shoe. Or, or would you like to buy a shoe? And that, that's mm-hmm. what he said, would you like to buy a shoe? And then, you know, I didn't know is that, so I ended up asking, you know, the dad, is this an error or is this, um, is this something like, is that the way, you know, that's the way the Cameroon dialect is. And he got upset. He's like, you are, you are making a mockery of our, our culture and our, and I was like, oh, you oh, answered no. my question. Thank you very much. <laughs> you got it. You, because he got upset, you know, I was like, he answered my question right there. So I'm um, just kind of, you know, talking to the parents a lot, I think, has helped me in the past with some of that. Yeah, absolutely. And mm-hmm. we're hoping, you're saying, go beyond the score. We're actually hoping that with this, this would be a supplemental. So if you were going to do any cross battery, if the student or the examinee gets a lower score on the GF or parts of the IQ test that you're giving, you can supplement. You know, you could take the ANCR and you could say, well, this is this score. This is what we would recommend us. Um, because once we can get some good standard scores down and we can do more research with this, um, this opens up the door to to more. This opens up the door to curriculum. Um, you know, the closest thing curriculum that I can think of right now would be the Singapore math curriculum, where it starts out, it's concrete representational abstract math. So they know the abstract nature of math, the relational abstraction, and they know that human beings aren't just going to look at it like that right away. You have to start out with something absolutely concrete to get the student into the discipline that is math. But um, there's going to be a lot of opportunity. And what we're hoping too is it's not just giving an IQ score for, let's say, specific learning disability. But what about all those disenfranchised that are gifted and talented, but we're not measuring them correctly? Or this could save some kids from being labeled cognitively disabled. Maybe they're not because the current tests we have that are giving them that label, that's a really, really big label for a student to get unless we're absolutely sure. Now we can help those. We can help those people that have that that label, but you know, Nazi, let's be sure that that's what is really going on here. So we need to get a good score. You know? I remember that you said um, in one of, in your presentation, um, something like on the KBC that kids from <clears throat> low socioeconomic um, populations scored, tended to score 11 standard points lower than, um, uh, is that what, am I remembering that correctly? Um, okay, so research, let's back up a minute. We know the uh, Larry P versus Riles in California, how we can't give IQ tests to African-American kids because the average scores were low to the point where they reasonably said, stop, don't give these tests and get something that's fair. And I think that was, I think it was 85 was the new 100. And that, that was why they stopped. So research with the 200 data points that I got from the Hmong kids in the Twin Cities, that was the same thing. They were 85, that was the, that was the average score. And that was in mental processing um, nonverbal and FCI. So, you know, the nonverbal tests that are supposed to be the savior for these kids, unfortunately, they're all rooted in GF formal reasoning or planning, whichever one you want to call it. So it's not the savior because it's not all about language. Language may have something to do with it, but y- you know, we don't just want to rely on that. I also, if we did more assessments in Twin Cities, would we outlaw IQ tests for that population like they did in the Twin Cities because of the low scores they were getting and probably still are. I can't imagine anything has changed. And it's not because they can't think. It's because that population in Twin Cities comes from a lower SES background. So a lot of their life is contextual. Yeah, there's a that great podcast um, on Radiolab called <clears throat> The G's. There's a, a series, I think six-part series on um, the G, 
G's, I think that's what it's called. Um, and it talks about the Larry P case. Mm-hmm. I was, it was so interesting because like they actually found Larry P and talked to him and then <laughs> he didn't even okay. know that he was famous <laughs> among all school psychs and diagnosticians for not, you know, for causing the thing in California where you can't yeah, test their yeah. IQ. But yeah, that's another fun one to check out. So yeah, I'm yeah. Gonna, oh, if you, uh, ha- have you heard that one? I have not. Oh yeah. 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 Okay. It's great. Um, radio lab, there's six, it's six part series on intelligence. Um, one of them I think is about how, um, there was, um, you know, um, people were prevented from having children. They were sterilized or, or what oh, have geez. you okay. from certain populations, you know, eugenics movement and all that. Mm-hmm. Kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. They go into all that history. You know, speaking of history, I just, I, I also <clears> just can't get my mind off of it. I just can't believe like it was a real thing when you had brought up some of this crazy stuff in history that had happened with that, that, um, the black intelligence, uh, black intelligence test of cultural hegemony. Oh yeah. Right. Think, yeah. Which, they, um, they a... don't do, everybody just take a second. The, um, the acronymic efficiency on that. <laughs> it's, it's definitely when you look at what we've tried to, to even the scores out, to even the scales, they've, they, yeah, there's that. Then there is the test where certain kids were being, they were prorating scores for there were certain points given to certain kids automatically to even the scores out. Now, you know, you can think about that however you want to, but you know, it's, we need an assessment that's just going to say, no one's going to get a prorated score. Let's just look at the, the absolute problem solving is with this student right now, or with this person right now, something that this is just going to tell it like it is something that's absolutely even. So, but yeah, that's, there's a lot of it on that. Right. Yeah. Right. So, um, and we've talked a lot of, about a lot of things and, um, I hope everybody is been a little bit enlightened probably um if your boat just hasn't been rocked a little bit i think you know to me all i love i love just learning about new cultures um i mean i think one of the ways that um i you know um hold on dr dr dean wants to say something i guess got to get him up here always make it so difficult to go up here you've got to be you've got to unlock the anthropology part of your interest to, to really get involved with this you have to want to know more about other appreciate other people and then think how does this apply all right hey, Dr. Dean, how are you doing well i've been enjoying this as if i'm hearing it for the first time so <laughs> this is great but um for the listeners i wanted to add a few uh carl said we are looking for more examinees and um don't feel like oh no i don't have time i don't want to do any testing we're not actually looking for more examiners right we have examiners we need because we're able to uh, collect our data virtually using Zoom. We have a digital uh, test that we're using for standardization and the test will be digital in the long run. And so we're just asking for people to help us recruit more examinees, especially those from Hispanic families and more African-Americans. And you can do that without getting permission from your school district by um, referring uh, family members, friends, children of friends and family members, acquaintances, or going through community organizations. And we've even paid um, school districts and community organizations, um, if you will, fundraising money, or they get part of the money and the parents and children get the other part of the payment. And also, we will pay you. So you can earn income for making referrals, provided 
that the, the child actually completes the test. So I just wanted to give you more details on that opportunity. It could really help us uh, to finish this up. We're really looking for more Hispanic and African-American kids. Thank you. That's great. Thanks, Doctor. Maybe yeah. what I can do is um, just get a um, the information and post it on Facebook for um, for everybody. That most of the people here um, are following a Facebook page, um, couple three, either three or two or three or four common Facebook pages. Um, so yeah, definitely, I will try and get that together from you and post that for everybody. <clears throat> and I just wanted right, to just open circle them, back and sort. Of, mm -hmm. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I think Dr. Oh, just wanted to circle back and, and tie up. And Dr. Dean's oh, back. Yeah, <laughs> um, and I like to tell folks this. This is not a play against IQ tests. I have a lot of respect for I know that people have put a lot of time and effort into these things. But all I'm saying is that when you're done now with an IQ test that you've given, it's not unfair. It's not less factual to say this is only half of this child's reasoning. It's the formal reasoning. We don't know what the contextual of this child is because we can't measure it yet. Um, that brings some comfort to some parents. And you're not doing it just to placate them. You're telling them the truth, that we only know this. We don't know this. Um, gotcha. And I say that because I, I really sympathize with some of the parents that I've spoke to. In fact, maybe if I wanted to say the spark that really the fire, when I was younger and I was giving IQ tests, and I had a uh, an immigrant Hmong family sit down and the interpreter um, said, tell me what you want me to tell them. And I said, this is their IQ score, but um, this is culturally biased. So it may not be the best representation of their IQ. The interpreter told that to the parents and the parents asked the interpreter, then why did he do it? I hadn't, I didn't. And right there, I'm coming home and just thinking if the research is out there, I mean, you got to figure something out because I can't keep shrugging to parents telling them I did it because it's my job, you know? So that's, that's kind of the final. All right. All right. Just opening the floors, the floor to anyone who has any questions or comments. Candace is here. Accepted Candace. Just here we go. Candace, one more time here. <clears throat> there she is. Okay. Okay. Hey there. Um, no, I just had a quick, uh, I just want to make sure I'm looking at the right test. So I give the whisk of, uh, quite often and so I'm going to try to, you know, pay attention to when I give the, it's a matrix reasoning in the mm -hmm. um, conceptual thinking, right? Or not, I mean, not the concept, the picture, picture concepts. Is it the WISP four or five? It's the five. Okay, so the one you're going to want to focus on is careful with figure weights. Um, that's that's going to be real heavy on relational abstraction. So if you get kids that are doing less on figure weights, it is going to be fair for you to say, this is heavy on relational abstraction, which is defined as. Mm -hmm. and, and they may not be applying that ability as, as much as they could be. But anyway, I cut you off. Go. No, no, that's the, but yeah, I want to pay attention to that one. So matrix, re, matrix reasoning and then also the, the picture concepts is more of a contextual type reasoning um, than I think, I think the, the CHC factor says it is inductive reasoning, but it can be almost re related to the um, contextual reasoning as well. Somewhat. The, Somewhat. Okay. You're going to be able to, you know, I don't want to lead you professionally astray. I, I, I don't want to be able to tell a parent that this is what their contextual reading is. Mm -hmm. You can find elements that I would say the closest thing is on the cough. Um, contextual <laughs> reasoning might be Rover. Um, you might find a little bit, you know, 
pattern reason. No, not pattern reason. I apologize. Um, block counting and things like that. But what I would say is don't focus that yet because we're not, we can't not say that a hundred percent, but okay. because with those, um, with those GF subtests and with like quantitative reasoning, you can say that the relational abstraction abilities of this child may not be fully developed yet. Therefore, this is why they're getting the score. This is half mm -hmm. of the reasoning that we're finding. Because mm -hmm. I always find it fascinating when they actually do really well in math and then they have a poor uh, fluid reasoning. And so I'm trying to figure that out. Like, where's, there's no re relationship here. I thought if they, you know, typically a student that does pretty poorly in, you know, fluid reasoning will perform not as well in math, you know, and just plain math, math reasoning skills. And so right. I always, yeah. always off. And I wonder, I wonder if they're actually using math. I wonder if that's part of their life to the degree mm. where they're able to apply that or like a word problem is real life math to a sense. But then when mm -hmm. they have to start doing that complex relational abstraction, mathematical problem of reasoning, well, that, you know, how often have to look at complex shapes and then say, well, this, this must be the answer. You mm -hmm. know, it's, yeah. uh, where did I read? Those tests measure deliberative abilities, but not our inclination to use them. So really mm -hmm. what we might do, but not what we're actually going to do. Mm -hmm. A lot to think about. It is. <laughs> it is. Welcome to the rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> Life isn't simple anymore. We don't have a simple difference anymore. We don't have a simple, uh, you know, even even uh, those of us who uh, in Texas now we've you know we've been so used to doing um, dual discrepancy consistency mm -hmm. model and plugging in our our little calculation tools, and now we're having to go beyond the score and not worry about the significant variance between cognitive abilities or. The, you know, all of this that mm -hmm. we've been guided now from TEA is brand new for us. So it's just like really rocking our world. It's another reason why I started this clubhouse, because it's like there, it's not a simple calculation anymore. There's no formula to it anymore. You actually have to use your professional judgment mm -hmm. um, these days a lot more than we, we used to. And um, keep it really keeps us on our toes. So um and you're kind of giving us like a glimpse into the future of, um, you know, what we can look forward to seeing and, and um, what, you know, more assessment tools can help tell us about some of these, you know, different ways that people think about the problems that they solve every day. I sure Absolutely. hope so. Yeah. All right. Any more questions? <laughs> any, any comments from anyone? Um, I will... I'm going to just go ahead and go through and just invite people up um, and then you can accept or decline. It's up to you. <laughs> but, um, you know, the, just so nobody feels like they're singled out or they're raising their head at one, uh, raising their hand and, you know, kind of all alone. It's a lot to think about. Yeah. Um, when I first long time, seems like forever, when I would just talk about this stuff to um, some charter schools when I was a psych. And it wasn't like an official thing. Um, our uh, Somali charter schools, because we have, you know, different charter schools in the cities, the Hmong charter schools and the Somali charter schools would come. Um, and they totally, they said, this is really big, but they said, this is a lot to digest. A lot. Because all this, you know, everything I thought was going on isn't what's going on. I, what do they call that? Cognitive dissonance. When you have to reconcile some truths that you thought were, but now they no longer are. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, just, uh, I think this is just like a, for a lot of us, it's just a start on, mm -hmm. you know, thinking about a lot of this a little bit more, um, deeply and giving a little bit more thought to 
of what we're doing and what the tasks are we're asking these kids to do and mm-hmm. what the kid is also bringing to the table when they're, when they're doing it. Thank you so much for enlightening us. Um, well, thanks just, for having us. Yeah. All right. Well, hopefully we'll keep in touch. And like I said, um, any more, anything that you have to share, um, if you want to give me a flyer or something <laughs> to post about um, that opportunity for um, helping to norm this, those, um, the new tool, we appreciate it. Do you have a name for this new tool, by the way? Yep. The Assessment of Nonverbal Contextual Reasoning. All right. So, And now when we were at Tata a few years ago, it went under a different acronym. Um, but we wanted to we we wanted to change that up. We used to call it in reasoning, but we thought, well, th- some people weren't really into the informal reasoning thing. Then, as we did more, we looked at Sternberg's contextual reasoning and or contextual intelligence or practical intelligence. You know, we we just thought, well, why not just contextual intelligence is what you possess and the application of thing. Let's just call it contextual reasoning. That's a better fit. Mm-hmm. So, okay. and um, we are. Our doctor is not going to be going just, you know, because of the whole COVID thing, but I'm going to be in Boston at the National Association of School Psychs on the 15th, going to be presenting there. I don't know if the diagnosticians go to that. I know that in Texas, it's a little bit different, but yeah. we're also making some, uh, we're, we're going to try to get to a few more conferences in the fall of 22, um, because, you know, things got sideswiped a little, had to kind of take a break from that. So. Right, but we're trying to get yeah. back out there. Right. Yes. Yes. It, it is a relief to start um, picking back up on getting back into some normalcy of life mm-hmm. nowadays. It comes and Absolutely. goes. But <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Everybody stay well and stay warm and stay healthy. So hopefully we can um, get the, some get these kids some education. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and I think mm-hmm. can we connect on. So this is my first time in this app. If anyone has questions, can they directly they can reach back me channel this? you? Yeah, they okay. can back channel you as well. I forgot about that. That okay. is a good um, the back channel. In case anyone's new to Clubhouse, is the little airplane in the lower right hand corner tab. Mm-hmm. Um, you just click on that, and it's like a, a, a texting chat. So okay, yeah, you folks have, or you want more information, or whatever. Um, please feel free to just directly reach out. Um, I'm happy to give more information because that's how that's how we're going to make it so. Yeah, and this is on replay. So if you want to just even send the whole um, conversation to somebody, you can do that with the okay. with going back to the replays um, and, and um, sharing that with somebody. All right. Thanks so much. You're signing off. I appreciate everybody joining. And oh, coming up, highlight, Dr. Pfeiffer is coming up on uh, the... Thank you, Dr. Dean, for helping me with that. Yeah, uh, thanks, Dr. Dean. <laughs> um, for for uh, I think I got him for um, President's Day, the twenty first okay. of February. Yep. So we're gonna. I I don't know exactly what all he's gonna cover, but he's got a new book out. Something's having to do with dyslexia. Everybody, all your dyslexia <laughs> fans out there. Um, so uh, someone's asking about the podcast. The podcast is called Radio Lab and six series part on. It's called the G's, like big G, like general intelligence. Yeah. <laughs> All, right. All right. Have fun listening to them and everything else. All right. Talk to you later. Bye. Thank you very much. Have a really good. Uh, have- you too. Bye-bye.